Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And my guest today is Helen McDonald, the naturalist, poet, and author, best known for her book, H is for Hawk, the multifaceted memoir spawned by her father's sudden death in which she grapples with that grief by training and flying a goshawk, a large, fierce bird of prey that she named Mabel. H's for Hawker and Rapturous Acclaim and several top literary awards. McDonald has published a new book, Vesper Flights, an anthology of short pieces about animals, nature, and other topics. Infusing them with all manner of emotions, McDonald crafts mostly bite-sized essays about a broad array of topics, including wild boar, nests, hares, glowworms, gathering mushrooms, and lots and lots of birds. Along the way, there are plenty of pointing observations and striking scenes, like when a swan emerges from a river and sits down next to a wistful McDonald, prompting her to weep. We'll discuss various aspects of Vesper flights and other topics when I speak with Helen McDonald in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A couple of programming notes on next week's Talking Animals. I'll speak with Michelle Gad, who will be overseeing the relocation of about 35 former Ringling Brothers elephants from their current location covering about 200 acres to a new 2,500-acre elephant habitat at the White Oak Conservation Property about 30 miles north of Jacksonville. So yes, these elephants will have 10 times the space spanning grounds designed to allow elephants to live like elephants. On an entirely different note, there will be a fun drive two weeks from tomorrow on October 14th, and Talking Animals will be raising money that day. And we hope you'll support us in the programming we bring you every Wednesday morning, starting tomorrow, October 1st, with the fiscal year in mind. Any donations made online at WMNF.org will be greatly appreciated. Please be sure to indicate the donation is being made on behalf of Talking Animals. Thanks very much. Meanwhile, later in today's show, I'll speak with Mark Reinfeld, celebrated vegan chef and author who heads the Vegan Fusion Culinary Academy, which is starting to accept applications today, in fact, for its aspiring chef program. It's a four-month course taught at their facility in Boulder, Colorado, designed to provide aspiring vegan chefs the training and techniques they need to succeed in the field. Right now, though, let's talk nature, animals, writing, and more with Helen, with the reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Helen McDonald back on Talking Animals. Good morning, Helen. Hello. What a treat to be here again. Hi, Duncan. Well, thank you very much. And I did warn you there was going to be a fair amount of blather and I made good on my promise, I think. I enjoyed all of it. Oh, that's good. Well, someone who enjoys blather has come to the right place then, for sure. So, <laughs> um, so in your introduction to your new book, Vesper Flights, which, by the way, has gotten, again, another round of great acclaim and rightly so. Love the book and love the range. We'll get into some aspects of that probably in, in, shortly. But anyways, you do mention that every writer has a subject that under everything they write, going on to say in that same introduction that you choose to think your subject is love. Having read H's for Hawk and after finishing just a bit ago Vesper Flights, my thought was if your underlying subject is love, it's, I guess, laced with grief and other sadness uh, along the way. How does that observation strike you? Oh, absolutely nailed it. I mean, I think love and grief are two sides of the same coin. You know, you grieve things that you've lost because you love them. And I think right now in, in you know, the way the world is going with, um, what's basically the sixth great extinction. It's very hard to look at the natural world with love and it not be cut with an enormous amount of grief. So, but I think love is great. Love is a, love is a way of, um, you know, you, you, people don't want to protect things or save them unless they love them. And, and you don't, you know, you, you can't love anything unless you know these things. So I hope my book sort of brings some of these 
astonishing creatures to life for people who might not have before encountered them. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, that's the thing. I mean, because you go on actually in that same introduction to say that the love you refer to in particular is for the, quote, glittering world of non-human life, which is, once again, a great phrase, but also really says that for a show called Talking Animals, we're here to mostly talk about animals and your love for them and, and the writing that you do about them, although there's other great topics in this uh, book, and we may stray onto those as well. So I, I guess this raises a few questions questions, which I guess is fitting for an interview show. How do you feel about writing shorter pieces, sometimes as short as one and a half, two pages? I mean, apart from essays that are commissioned by the New York Times or some other publication where some of these first appeared, where there's, I assume, typically an agreed upon length, is it super liberating to just say, well, this just popped into my head or I had this experience this afternoon. I'm just going to see if it's two pages or if it's six pages or whatever I just feel like doing about it. Oh, absolutely. You know, when I when I I was the kind of kid who always hated the word essay, it was I never did my homework on time, Duncan. I was the worst student. And then when I went to university, I was even worse. I could never do essays. I never finished anything. And I realized eventually that the reason was that um I was told that you had to write an essay in a particular way. You had to plan out what you were gonna say and you had to write down what you was gonna be an introduction and in each paragraph and then what the conclusion would be. And this just always paralyzed me. And I realized the only way I could write was kind of in exams. You just follow the sentence down the page. It's a bit like whitewater rafting. It's a bit scary, but you end up kind of, there's a kind of really concentrated thought that you get from from thinking as you write. And that's how I write essays. And so many of them are, are sort of, um, they're really come about because I've been out in the natural world or I've seen something which has really fascinated or puzzled me. And I think the essays are kind of me working out what those things mean and, you know, watching you know and the and the, the the length of each essay really depends on 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 what there is to say that sounds yeah. so trite but some of them are really tiny i mean there's one there's, a, there's one that's kind of a joke really about my dad and oh, yeah. um in the zoo but um that sounds like a terrible joke actually when i say it like that but <laughs> right. the, the, the form of these pieces really does it, it i think they they really fit whatever it is that there needs to be said i hope and i like the fact they're not all the same length it makes it a much more varied thing to read and again probably fun and liberating for you because you're not only not working under a deadline and prescribed thing like in school and the things you used to hate back in those days but you just say well i'll know when i'm done and when i'm done i am done and and no one's going to say well that's too long or that's too short it's uh, that's the piece Exactly. Yeah. Although some of these, as, as you said, some of these were written for other places. And certainly the, a lot of the New York Times pieces were written for a column. I, I, it was a wonderful thing to do. And I did a lot of those while I was on tour. In fact, I think I was working on one, one when I spoke to you last. So a lot of these initial essays have been rewritten now, but they were kind of written, you know, it's weeping at 3 a.m. in hotel rooms, you know, trying to get them done. So um, some of them were liberating to rewrite in order to give them a bit more air and space inside them. So that was nice. I've got a parrot wandering around my um, on the keyboard right now. I hope he doesn't press anything and, and switch us off. Go and sit over there, parrot. And, and the, a, what a, I forget, does the parrot have a name or is it just parrot? Yes. The parrot is called Birdool, which is a ridiculous name. It's a bit Game of Thrones. So the parrot okay. was originally Bird and then became Birdle and now Birdool. And he's, okay. uh, yeah, he's great. And that reminds me, I'm going to just let people know who might just be only tuning in now. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And if you did just tune in, my guest is Helen McDonald, author of the acclaimed memoir, H is for Hawk. She's published a new book, Vesper Flights, an anthology of short pieces about nature, animals, and other topics. If you would like to ask Helen a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So 
Speaking of Bird Duel, I mean, and, and speaking of the, the variety of pieces and the variety of length, and also you just mentioned weeping, which I think weeping might be a sub, subtopic for today's conversation, maybe just because it seems like there's a fair amount of weeping that pops up in the book. But I also think sometimes people who are reading your pieces might be weeping, possibly speaking about myself, for example. <laughs> like, so... One piece that's just barely two pages did make me, uh, well, let's just say teary-eyed at least, twice, just in those two pages, pretty high ratio per page. And I'm referring to Inspector Calls. Oh, yeah, on tech. Yeah, can, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, we're of not going to, we're not going to, uh, I don't think there's going to be a huge spoiler alert just to talk f- uh, specifically about a few pieces yeah. along the way, but... Uh. No, I, I mean, it's it's fine to do the spoilers, really. Um, I used to rent this tiny house in Cambridge, and um, I had to move. And um, we had a family come to look at the house. The, land, the landlord came along, and, and they had a, a kid, a kid of about eight or nine called Antec, and Antec was autistic. And he came out of the car wearing this stripy sweater, and he carried a, a plastic sea lion in each hand. And um, he kind of hit their noses together. And we had this kind of moment of bonding where... He looked at me and he said, people think they're seals. And I said, but of course they're sea lions. And we had this moment of real kind of, you know, we knew. We knew it was important (laughs) to classify them. But the moment was he met this parrot and he was completely transfixed. And he he began to talk to the parrot and the parrot bowed to him. And then he bowed back and they started dancing and the, the parrot was shouting at him. And his eyes were just full of awe and love. And it was this the most beautiful kind of um communication this moment of of regard between a person and a, and a, and a I guess a non-human person a, a parrot and then there was this very poignant moment when when they left and he said you know when we live in this house I'm going to sleep in the room with the parrot you know and I just sort of my heart sort of broke a bit but it was so beautiful and it was such a sort of warm and and, and glorious uh, meeting and I think about it an awful lot I hope he's doing okay wherever he is yeah me too well and part of the thing about that when he says that is that you by then in the essay you've revealed that the parents had decided the house for size reasons or logistics or some other yeah. reason wasn't going to work so he obviously wasn't coming back to see I didn't even tell the story right the no t- no but, but well no but only, only, only <laughs> right, I, I, can, I can only track that because that was the second time I got teary-eyed yeah. and the first time was when you described when they were about to leave before he had said this and the parrot and and the boy were bowing at each other I just thought oh, oh. he bowed at the parrot he just gave it a very deep bow and the parrot bowed back to him which I've never seen him do before or since it was it was beautiful I'm getting a bit teary-eyed just yeah. I'm hopeless though don't like fry at anything yeah I mean honestly I don't know whether it's my Irish side but honestly I mean you know the particular way the light falls on a lawn can break me out in tears. I mean, I'm hopeless. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm hoping uh, I can keep it together. I don't really want to start blubbering while I try to conduct this interview with you, but uh, it could happen if we get into some more of these kind of pieces. But but we should also note, too, which I was going to do later, but now is probably a good time, that there's some pieces that are quite funny or have quite funny moments in them. You alluded to one, again, a very short one, about your dad and the story about the... Uh, yeah, I can tell this story. This yeah. is a real, this, this is always just, I can't believe I put this in there. He'd be so furious with oh, me. Oh, yeah, that's funny. So when I was a kid, I did this thing with goats. I'm sure many of your listeners, if they've ever hung out with goats, will have done this. If you put your hand, if you lay your hand flat against the forehead of a goat and press very gently, it will kind of take the strain and push back. And you can end up doing these kind of things that are a bit like tug of wars, but they're kind of push of wars and the goat always wins. It's really fun. And... um 
I told my dad this once when I was pretty young and he, he obviously filed it away somewhere but hadn't listened very carefully to what I was saying and he'd, he'd been to London Zoo, he was a photojournalist as readers of H's for Hawk will know so there was the whole press pack there they were taking photographs of animals for the annual census and they were in the petting zoo and he, he, turned, he turned to all these kind of photographers and journalists and said, watch this. And he put his hand on this goat's forehead. But it obviously, you know, he didn't get it right. He pushed really hard and this goat just fell over. And there was this moment of total horror. And it was <laughs> What are you doing? He was mortified. I mean, he was really upset for the goat, which was fine. He was fine. And he came home and he was absolutely furious with me. And I just, obviously, I just dissolved into laughter. And I said, next time, Dad, you know, listen to what I'm saying. So, yes, that's one of the lighter pieces in the book. For sure. Well, so uh, just more broadly, and then we'll get into some more specific pieces that, uh, that, yep. that are in, in Vesper Flights. But to what extent are you surprised that you make your living in and amongst animals? Or given that your passion you know, really began as a kid and you do describe some of that early going and the, and, and the place they grew up, which we'll maybe get into more, uh, sounds like a, a thing that would totally serve as a catalyst for this beyond whatever actual interest a kid had. But would there almost just be no other outcome that you could arrive at besides whether it's writing as it turns out to be? But was it always just sort of predestined in your view looking back that I'm going to be doing something with animals as much as possible through whatever form that takes, or even if it takes multiple forms, I'm going to be an animal person because that's, that's what I was from being a little kid on. I mean, in, in retrospectively, it seems really obvious that something like this will have happened. But I, I mean, initially, I wanted to be an artist. That was my thing. I drew compulsively. And then, I mean, I hate being bored. So I've done a lot of different things. I've worked in conservation. I've been a historian. I was, a, you know, the world's worst shepherd for a while. Um, you know, I've sold books and things. But there was always this big division in my life between my love of literature and poetry and, and, and you know, history. And then my love of animals and, and the natural world. And I think, you know, this, this career that I have is really so beautiful for me in terms of my kind of personal satisfaction because it's a real kind of melding of both of those sides of me and that's really special so yeah looking back on it um it's this is where I always wanted to end up and also I you know I, I'm, I'm a really bad employee I'm, I'm incredibly bad at taking orders so it's quite nice to work for myself <laughs> all right so <laughs> you don't have any conflicts uh, employee or employee conflicts yeah. yourself no, no that's no. right everybody's getting along fine yeah everyone yeah, that's good. So let's talk about a few other specific pieces in there. I mean, some essays stand out for exploring kind of universal truths or common experiences, and some pieces stand out for sort of the opposite reason or for being singular, like swan-upping. Uh, again, for those who haven't read the book or just don't otherwise know, can you first describe swan-upping and then maybe get a little bit into to the piece itself. Yeah, I mean, imagine the most ridiculously English thing you could imagine. I mean, I, I just can't even, I mean, even I was like, come on, come on, this, this is beyond, this is ridiculous. So basically all the swans in Britain are owned by the Queen apart from the swans on the Thames, which are shared out. I can't, it just seems so ridiculous even <laughs> saying it. They're shared out the ownership between the Queen and two ancient medieval guild companies. And every year there's this ceremonial um, voyage down the Thames with you know men dressed up in um, uniforms, white cotton trousers and red T-shirts and hats with swans' feathers in. And they catch up all the young swans of the year and they put uh, metal bands on them. They, they work out, you know, which swan belongs to who by seeing who the parents belong to. And um, it's this great kind of, it always reminds me of kind of, you know, Queen Elizabeth going on kind of a, you know, a sort of procession around the country. And I went along with them one year and um, I wrote about it and it was just after the whole Brexit vote had happened. And I really wanted to think about England and what it meant to people. So of course I, I decided to go along 
because it was the most recondite and strange and eccentric animal-related way of thinking about England I could find. And it was a really amazing experience, you know. I thought I'd be really cynical, but I got so into it, Duncan. I was really into the swan catching. And um, it was like a kind of fever dream of a kind of idea of England. And that the that piece, I think, um, tries to kind of engage with, with the ways, as we all know, that this notion of a golden age, a golden national past can be incredibly um, seductive, but also it... it um, it leaves a lot of things out of the story always. Yeah. And I guess really this might be a good time to just say a number of pieces underscore our sense of you that fundamentally your top three passions tend to be birds, birds, and birds. Um, <laughs> Am I so transparent? <laughs> well, no, but I mean from training the goshawk that you named Mabel yeah. that we, of course, knew from the from H's for Hawk to living with the parrot who we've already met yeah. today and, and talked about in terms of one of the stories that in the in the new book to just the way you embrace and celebrate all sorts of birds in the wild. Um, and I think even in this book somewhere, this is in my head, that as a kid you slept with your arms folded like wings for a certain time. So, so again, I do think we have a, a particular love and passion for birds here. Yeah. So any, I mean, there, there's, there's so, so many great pieces. There's uh, cuckoos uh, that delves into other stuff. There's, um, well, the Twilight Flights of, of Swifts that gives the book mm. its title. I don't know if, if you want to talk about, you know, just pick, I mean, there's, there's a number of bird-related pieces, so are there one or two that just for one reason or another you particularly might want to just highlight in our chat today? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the cuckoo one you mentioned, I'll just quickly say the reason that was really fascinating to me was because it's really a story about the original M, you know, from the James Bond movies, the real-life model for M, who used to keep a lot of tame animals around and um, he wrote about them in exactly the same way that he wrote about how you control and tame agents and he reared a cuckoo one year and this this really is like you know a cuckoo is a bird that is the greatest penetration agent of all time lays its eggs in other birds nests you know there's a sort of murder and mayhem and he absolutely fell in love with this bird and it's one of those pieces I think that talks about how we always see the natural world as a mirror of ourselves which is one of the big themes of the book but the swift one is I think my my favorite and it, it seems kind of eerily and unconsciously prescient now in this era of COVID. Mm. Um, it's really about us in a way. It's about trying to look onto the horizon and see what's coming. And it uses this example of these these birds, these swift, these very aerial birds. And every dawn and dusk at nautical twilight, they climb thousands and thousands of feet into the sky in order that they can see the stars and they can calibrate their magnetic compasses and they can watch weather coming on the horizon. They can predict the weather and they follow each other to know what they're going to do next. So it becomes a real fable about, you know, we should sort of listen to each other and, and, and think and listen to experts and, and work out where we're going to go. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of thinking about us in the book. It's a lot more political than my last book, I think, yeah. and, and necessarily I think I had to, you know, the, the world has changed since Ages for Hawk and I, I think I had to be a bit more brave about being a little bit more outspoken. And so that sounds like a pretty conscious decision even though you're just probably writing these pieces individually as inspiration struck or as you did something that day but it sounds like as you were assembling them, there was some kind of uh, sort of guiding principle that you felt like this needs to have more of a message, more of a theme, more, more of that kind of weight. Part, partly that in the arranging, but partly also in the writing. One of the lessons that I, I like to think that animals can teach us and I talk about this again in, in the book quite a lot, is this notion that it can it can kind of exercise our muscle that we use for empathy. It's not really a muscle, obviously, it's part of our brain. But I don't know about you, Doug, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of empathy missing in the world right now. Mm. And I think there's a sort of ways in which I talk about the natural world here, not as a place that you can stride into the wild and kind of feel, you know, that you sort of 
that you're kind of battling the elements and all that kind of thing. But actually, you can kind of look very closely at animals close to home, like even spiders or street pigeons, and think about, you know, their worlds and what they need and, and, and what their lives are like. The, you know, the world doesn't just belong to us. And I think it's a, it's a book in many ways that, that is a kind of celebration of difference as well. So it is, it is a bit more political. But there are, as I say, there are jokes and there's a lot of birds in it. <laughs> Absolutely. And in fact, like, I think it's the first essay, the first piece itself delves into birds' nests. But even that is uh, connected to your own first days as a fledging of sorts in an incubator. I have that correct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had a really traumatic birth. I don't remember it. My, my poor parents, my poor mom. Um, I was one of twins. Uh, my brother died just after he was born and I was put in a very premature. I was put in an incubator for about a month. And this was back in the, you know, very, very long time ago. Now I'm getting old. And it was pretty grim. I was bright lights, you know, there was, you know, tubes and I was sort of on my back. Um, and... Um, I used to work at this falcon breeding farm and I used to go into their incubator room and I used to feel this weird emotion when I went in there and I couldn't work out what it was. It made me kind of feel a bit disquieted. And then one day I realized that it was loneliness. I just felt, I think it just took me back to those those days of isolation in an incubator and it, and it really got to me. And, I, um, and then I had this magical moment where I realized if you pick up a falcon egg that's ready to hatch and you make the noise of an adult falcon calling to it through this, you put your mouth close to the shell and you go, chip, 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 the little tiny baby falcon inside that obviously hasn't seen the air or opened its eyes yet will call back to you. You can speak through an eggshell. And it was a really, really beautiful moment. Yeah. Well, just your description of that was uh, one of many sort of powerful, just poignant moments of just having that, that connection really through the shell, through the egg. Yeah. We've got a caller here. Let's get someone else involved in the conversation. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Helen McDonald. Hi there. Um, I was struck by your comment about uh, animals expressing empathy. A friend of mine uh, told me a story of a, a dog in his neighborhood who was kind of a mixed mixed uh, lab. And a, kit, a, a cat in over by a car and had a number of kittens, you know, seven or eight kittens. Mm -hmm. the, dog, the dog, Tracy, went into spontaneous lactation to nurse the kittens. Whoa. And wow. I'm, I'm still always amazed by the story. Uh, and I know it to be true. Uh, not a person who lies, but it's an incredible story that an adult dog, a, a female dog, went into spontaneous lactation just to help this litter of kittens to survive. Yeah. It's that's that's astonishing. That's an amazing story, and and absolutely, I believe it. I mean, I mean, that's you know, and um, you know, I, 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 those moments where animals cross across sort of species borders and boundaries. I remember seeing a photograph once of a, I think a, a cardinal, a female cardinal bird feeding a goldfish in a pond. She, the goldfish came up with its mouth open and she was sort of ramming insects and bugs into its its mouth. It was, it was really wow. astonishing. But I, I think that, that, that story, I think, is, is so important to kind of think about. It's, it's not just a, a case of this um, you know, we, we, we believe that there are these ways we think about animals and um, the ways we are led to believe about them in these sort of scientific ways. You know, they don't really admit stuff like that. That's a, a really surprising and unusual thing to, to ponder. But also it's, it has enormous meaning for us now. I mean, and that, that sort of sense of, of, um, of nurturing um, across unexpected boundaries is, is really beautiful right now. And I, I, I really treasure it. Thank you for telling it to me. That's a great story. Thank you so much. And Helen, that, there's a few things about that. I mean, just the cross-species element, the, the empathy, which there's empathy in all different directions. In some ways, I think 
having a love for an interest in animals, of course, cultivates empathy in that human. And that's why it's so important, obviously, for kids and stuff to have that ex- kind of exposure and have that chance to be cultivated in them. But what our caller, of course, was talking about was empathy in the animal mm. towards another animal, which is mm. kind of more significant and probably exceptional in some ways. But when you're talking about what's allowed to be considered in science, one thing I've talked about off and on over the years on this show, especially with scientific types, is where people allow or don't allow or just kind of what their position is, I guess, on anthropomorphism. Mm-hmm. Anything you might want to uh, say? Yeah, I'm a, big, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, actually. Yeah, yeah. Not, not surprisingly, <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, mean, what, I mean, I guess I, what I, I should probably you know, revisit that and say that I'm a big fan if, you, if you're very careful and you, you know that you're doing it. Um, you know, I, I think it's a very good first pass way of thinking about watching an animal, believing that it has motives that kind of in some ways, you know, are understandable just through this kind of notion of empathy and empathy and anthropomorphism kind of go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. But I think if you start to think carefully about the things you're giving that animal, the motives you're according it that, that, that come from you. Um, that reflect your own kind of notions of how the world works. I think keeping those things in mind is important. And then you can kind of sometimes look past them and see something really special, which is that miraculous moment when you see an animal free of human meanings. You see the real non-human creature looking back at you. And those moments can be really miraculous and astonishing and they can almost break the world. Um, So... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's certainly not um, something which is quite as hated as it used to be in science. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a strong believer that, you know, we need science, we need hard science so much now. You know, it, we need to establish the, you know, the way that the natural world is faring. We need to model it. We need to kind of think about conservation priorities and we need to do this hard science. But at the same time, I think we do neglect sometimes the more emotional and qualitative ways that we think about the natural world in each of our hearts yeah yeah we gotta gotta have a little flexibility there for yeah the, just but uh, yeah the science especially with the way things are going and extinction which again is part of a thing you deal with directly and sort of more indirectly other elements of the book that that worries them to say the least and and if science isn't really called on to help it's hard to know how that's going to be uh slowed down much less uh stopped based on other extinctions but um yeah we, we need to fire in all cylinders on that one every yeah. every single part i think every single epistemology i think would be the word every every kind of knowledge that we have we should bring to bear on fixing this yeah for sure uh, this is talking animals on wmnf i'm duncan trust my guest is helen mcdonald author of h's for hawk whose new book is vesper flights an anthology of short pieces about nature animals and other topics we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663 emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885 so when you're talking about some of the anthropomorphic stuff uh, it did make me think about when when an animal does something and you kind of look them in the eye or see what you think may be going on, I couldn't help think of something I mentioned at the beginning of the show. This is a different sort of swan story than we talked about earlier. <laughs> and this is another time where I seem to have got something in my eye while reading this. But um, So you recall being kind of wistful or sad about something and out hiking around and sat down at yeah. the bank of a river. And then you want to pick up the, uh, the narrative uh, there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, full disclosure, I had a broken heart. You know, I was romantically devastated and I was feeling extremely sorry for myself. It was a very wintry kind of cold day and I went and sat by the river. You know, it's a real kind of, you know, 
quite an emo thing to do. And I stared at the water and, you know, felt terrible. And then this swan, this female swan, sort of motored up the river and then she just walked out of the river. She got out of the river onto this sort of slipway and she just stomped her way right up to me. And I, at this point, I was quite alarmed because swans are, you know, they're pretty scary things. And she walked right up to me and she turned around and she pressed herself against my thighs and she sat down and went to sleep. And I was just gobsmacked you know what on earth is going on here and i still don't know what was going on you know i i wonder whether she was you know maybe she had been hand reared and she was a maybe an imprinted swan on people or maybe she had lost a mate or maybe you know or maybe she responded to the fact that i was incredibly lonely and broken and she just wanted to come and sit by me i have no idea but it was there was a really special moment and then of course you know i think some as i recall i think a family came up and some kids ran over and she just sort of pulled her head from beneath her wing and looked right at me and basically said, right, I'm off now. <laughs> right, yeah. It it's was, been lovely, it but amazing. now we've yeah, got some jerks go uh, spoiling yeah. the moment here. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it was powerful and it did seem yeah. like, uh, yeah, hard to know without uh, interviewing the, the swan subsequently, I guess. But, uh, but it's, it's true. It's true, Duncan. One of the, one of the things that, you know, I, again, I talk about it a little bit in this book is that, you know, when I was on tour for Ages for Hawk, you know, I, I, you know, I'd like to think I'm quite a sciencey person. You know, I was a historian of science for many years and, you know, I kept meeting readers who told me stories about animals appearing in their lives after they'd loved, lost loved ones. And initially, I just sort of thought, oh, it's, you know, it's just that suddenly, you know, you can see these things. They've always been there, but now you notice them. And then I kept hearing more and more stories. And there were kind of, you know, birds flying down top of coffins at funerals. There were birds that shouldn't have been there in hospital kind of courtyards making noises and flying around after someone had died and I just eventually started to think no there's something else going on here I have no idea what it is but there's more to this yeah there's more to the world than uh, than we know so it was it's it's pretty amazing yeah well just as you were telling that story uh, an email came in and said my horses fed with their own mouthfuls of feed two baby wild hogs, raised them until they grew up and left. And then I guess kind of as a separate additional thing, I found a run, run over possum, put it in a box in the back of my truck to take to rescue, and they breathed on it all night to keep it warm. So, oh, uh, I don't know. I just, those moments of rescue, uh, and people, people rescuing animals. Um, the other day, someone asked me, I mean, those, those, thank you for those, those, those observations. They're really awesome. Um, Someone asked me the day about hope and how it's possible to keep hopeful. And I, I have a big answer about that, about, you know, how we can deal with the situation now. But I said sometimes the hope comes from unexpected small things. And I was driving along the road a while ago, a little country visit, little lane, um, and there was a big SUV of the kind that round here generally means you don't really want to get into an argument with the person who's <laughs> driving it. And um, he was standing in the road. I mean, he was very posh, wearing very expensive clothes. And he looked very worried. And I got out and said, are you okay? And he said, yes, I'm fine. I've, I've been here. I'm, I'm warning all the all the traffic. And I said, why? And he went, look. And he pointed. And just behind the curve, behind his SUV, there was a little puddle in the road. And there was a, a female mallard duck and two quite or three quite well-grown ducklings that were just sort of, you know, messing around in the water. Mm. And right next to the road, there was a little pond. He could have just shepherded, shepherded them onto the pond. And I said, why didn't, why don't you just move them? And he said, they just look like they're having a nice time. And wow. I just want to make sure they don't get run over. And I said, how long have you been here? He said, about an hour, you know, an hour and a half. And it was some, you know, that moments like that, I think it's a bit like the breathing on the possum to keep it alive. You know, mm -hmm. we are, we're redeemable creatures, humans. Yeah.
And and sometimes the animals are, are doing the the extraordinary things if they're helping these other animals, the the wild hogs from that from that email, or even the uh, the possum that was needing to get through the night. So, so yeah, it's true. It's true. It's true. Although animals can be awful. I, I have a um, so European robins, not not the same as American robins. There are these, you know, the ones on Christmas cards with the red breasts. Yeah. Um, I, I I recently had a, a a nest in the garden, and the young birds, of, you know, very cute and fluffy and brown, and then one of them developed its red breast and became very territorial. And I watched it basically try and murder its parent the other day, and I was like, "Yeah, no, it's not all. It's not all." Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, so some. Uh, well, well, the pieces in Vespervice predominantly involve nature and animals. I think we've kind of probably made clear. A few focus on other topics, inanimate objects, like your essay on summer storms, which those of us from Florida and, and elsewhere are conversant with. But this piece is concerned with a lot more than the meteorological. You write, this is the storm as expectation and later it continues. And as the weeks of the summer draw on, I can't help but think that this is the weather we are all now made of. All of us waiting, waiting for news, waiting for Brexit to hit us, waiting for the next revelation about the Trump administration, waiting for hope, stranded in that strange light that stills our hearts before the storm of history. And that's how the piece ends. So that's, uh, I don't know if, well, you probably said it all just in the essay itself. Yeah. I don't know if you, uh, yeah. Well, no, actually, it's, it's the first time I ever, I ever came to, 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 to Florida. I remember, you know, experiencing those, those, those storms. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, just both very, very sort of troubling and, and in the way that something the size of a mountain appearing out of hot air in, and sunlight, you know, it's, it's frightening yeah and also very beautiful and to just kind of uh, and kind of sublime to be to, to witness and, and be in but I'm, I think there I'm, I'm talking about that you know that weird sometimes that time before a storm breaks where the, the right. wind drops to nothing and you get that weird storm light and everything seems strange um, and something's about to kick off and you don't know what it is and I just sort of felt as I was writing that that that's that's how it has been feeling. Um, in fact, I don't know. I mean, it seems more like the storm is actually on us now. But for a long time, we were all I, I, that, that sort of sense. There's nothing you can do. You can't. You have no agency. You can't. You can't fix this. You just have to wait and see what happens. And a lot of the book is trying to kind of wrestle with the sense of you know what can we do as individuals? What what power do we have to to sort of face the oncoming storm? Yeah. Yeah, and as we touched on in an earlier piece. Some things sort of just happen to become more timely in a way. And so when you're talking about waiting for Brexit to hit us, but also waiting for the next revelation about the Trump administration, yeah. it's like there aren't enough storms to match up with all those things. And, of course, uh, with last night's uh, debate, but that's a whole other story for a whole other That's another, another story. Yeah, and in, yeah. in fact, and I was, another I was storm, actually, yeah. Another storm. I was doing a, I was doing an event last night during the debate, so I tried to be um, extra polite, and I didn't interrupt my interlocutor once. I just thought I'd make that plain. Oh, wow. <laughs> So there is a way to do that, in other words, yeah. Apparently, yes. Yeah, that's great. That's a different approach, yeah. So another thing, again, there's just such a great mix of, of pieces here, and, and I think we've established some are quite serious, and some, of course, operate on, on a number of levels, and, and we've, we've heard about at least one funny one with the uh, the goats and stuff. But also, I think, just because people that might know, again, H is for honk, but not know you too much beyond that, especially if they haven't had a chance to, re to read Vesper Flights yet, probably don't necessarily think of you as a merry prankster, but if they knew about the story about the cows, the, 
They'd oh, say, no. "Oh my God, there there is a whole other side to uh, oh. to Helen McDonald." So I don't know if you even feel like uh, telling that story, or if that should be saved for some other. Uh, you know. No, a full disclosure. I'm going to just come out with it, like you know. Okay. I, yeah, that was very. Im- I mean, I, I I just you know, in my defense, would like to say that I was in a really bad way. I think my mental health was not good at that point. So basically, um, I was uh, living on this farm in Wales, and uh, I was working seven days a week with this very eccentric crew of people. And um, yeah, I think I went kind of batty and and uh, I felt stuck and I didn't know what to do with my life. And I, I mean, I felt day to day fine, but I think I was just so deeply bored. And we had this um, herd of, of steers behind the house. These, they, were, they got very wild over the over the months that they were there fattening up. And, and um, I remember one day I just decided that I was going to stalk them. <laughs> so... I honestly, I, I, I basically, there came this point. I, I thought, you know, you, you know, you've got to go all in on here. So I, I made this sort of homemade ghillie suit as I, as I kind of crawled and snuck towards them out of bramble and bracken, well, bracken fronds, and I kind of covered my face in mud. And at one point, I really was on my stomach, you know. And it was actually a really amazing experience. And, and I, I stalked them. I, I'd like to think I stalked them pretty well. I got right up in, into the herd. And then I just found myself leaping out of the grass, yelling and waving my arms at these these poor creatures, and stampeded stampeded down the down the valley. And I, you know, I remember my mouth hurt from grinning. I was covered in mud and blood. I'd scratched myself. I mean, it was just completely bonkers. And I, I, and then I came back to the farm and I lay in the bath and I thought, I have no idea why I did that. <laughs> and um, looking back on it, I think you know, I was I basically saw those cattle as myself. I, I was sort of stuck in this valley. I, you know, I was headed for the slaughterhouse at some point. I needed to get out of there and I was kind of trying to push the cattle away like get out you know get out of here and I saw that I was kind of projecting into them but yeah that was a it was amazing and 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 I can't believe I put it in the book because I I've tried to keep that quiet to be honest it's quite embarrassing but now everybody knows about the yeah. time well that i stalked the cows you can't really hide it in your in your book no, probably no, yeah no but, full disclosure uh, yeah but i thought oh my god this is but to me I, I loved it because for the exact reason you probably had kept a lid on it for so long it's like that is so kind of wacky and out of character <laughs> and it's like but that's what's great about it, because, I mean, you really, of course, as with all the writing, it's so detailed and evocative. So, you know, you kind of see you covered in mud and leaves and inching towards the, the cows and you think, <laughs> well, she's really going for it. I mean, it's nutty, but I, I mean, she's darn serious about pulling this I, off in the best way I was, possible. Yeah. I was very serious. But also, I think there's another point to make there. It's like we're so used to reading uh, nature writing, you know, that, that there's always been these kind of unwritten laws about what can and can't be in nature writing, you know, yeah. and I think... Um, David David Gessner is very good on this. He wrote a great book called um, Sick of Nature, which which talks about this. And you know, you're not allowed to have jokes in it. You're not allowed to have brand names. There's no sex. There's no kind of laundry. You know, it's all got to be the kind of pure, um, almost sort of sort of sanctified relation between you know the, the individual and the natural world. And I just think no, you you've got to write what it was really like. And there's a lot of laughter and a lot of you know idiocy in my relationship to nature. So I put it all in. And that's great because that's all the richer, right? Isn't that just make it a much more colorful and, and it makes it much more human, right? I hope so. And I think it just makes it more, more. I guess, just sort of, you know, more generous for a reader. You know, I, I don't want to come across as a sort of priestly soul. I am a bit of an idiot in lots of ways. And I like to think that, you know, um, people people get to know that. Well, and also related to that, it's such a treat because you really, from essay to essay, Things are really varying and sometimes wildly from within two or three essays, like, oh, my goodness, we're covering a tremendous amount of ground here. And again, a lot of these things are more than just the animal or the the encounter with nature that you're writing at. They're operating, obviously, on multiple levels. So you just think, well, this is 
This is great fun. I can't wait to get see what the next essay is like because it's obviously going to be pretty unlike the last two that I've just read. So let's see. We're starting to run out of time, by the way, uh, oh. Helen, but let's, let's try to take one more call at least. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Helen McDonald. Hey there. Hi. Hi. My name's Karen. I just wanted to say that I totally get her being goofy in nature. I talk to lizards. I so I Yay. it's good. I love that story. I would I would love to see that do frolic <laughs> in the mud in these cows. <laughs> so I just wanted to tell you I really appreciated your story. Well, it sounds like a fellow um, uh, cow stalker, perhaps I'm, one day. I'm, yeah. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased to hear from you. You know, honestly, I do talk to lizards. I remember once when I was um, working, um, I was in a hotel in the United Arab Emirates. I was out there for a conservation meeting. It was all very serious. And and um, I remember being in this underground uh, parking lot and there was a gecko on the floor and I just, I just talked to it. I just said, hi, you know, what are you doing here? And it kind of looked up at me and I turned around and there was just like about 20 people just staring at me. And I still have like moments, of, a moment of horror remembering that they were just like, what is this? What is this woman doing? But I love it. It's a kind of like, I like, it's like a kind of, um, it seems like kind of decency and politeness to, 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 even if they don't know what you're saying to have a chat with animals. I agree. Thank you. Thanks for your Thank call. you. Thank you. Yeah. And kind of also, too, if uh, and if you can bow at them or have them bow back, uh, yeah. like our like our friend did so much. Mutual, res- mutual respect. Exactly. That's exactly. right. That's right. So a couple quick things, uh, Helen. One is during the pandemic, many people seem to have learned new skills or took up new hobbies, undertook other new things. So I understand you got a tattoo. I did. I yeah. love it. So How do you make much. that decision, and what's what's the ta- tattoo look like? Uh, it's it's amazing. So there's a guy called uh, Chris Green. He's a a young lad up uh, in the north of England who does these amazing kind of Art Deco uh, images. And I, mm. I said I wanted a, I wanted a seraph a seraph a six winged angel. I didn't want a bird on me. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that partly it's a it's a kind of reference to my twin brother. It's kind of like a reminder of of, of that. And also okay. I hit I hit fifty this year. I thought it was time to you know remark that. So um, he, I did it, and um, I was so brave. He was very impressed with how how badass I was at this tattoo, and I love it so much. And it's it's um, it's big. It's all over the up, my one of my, my left upper arm, and it's lovely kind of colours of peach and um, and kind of it's got this beautiful tender face. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm, and of course, I'm going to have to get more. I mean, there's just no question that I need more tattoos now. So I think this is the beginning of a habit, and I'm quite pr- pleased with that. Okay, well, that's great. That's a, nice to start a new habit, right, when you hit yeah. 50, right? It's like, exactly. well, here, here, let's go with this. So just a quick uh, email that just came in. Hi, Duncan and Helen. Thanks for being bonkers. It makes life better. <laughs> I talk to the little creatures, too. Karma, peace and health. So, um, so Helen, Thank we you. have the, just about reached the end of the time. I'm sure you're oh, in the yeah. midst of a book uh, that's, that, that we'll hopefully be speaking about in, in the coming Period. Yeah, the day. next one is going to be about um, Midway Island and albatrosses and the U.S. military and the end of the world. It's going to be really wow. fun. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Surprising. There's birds somehow at the center of what it. What a surprise! I, yeah, I don't so know. Yeah. Duncan, it's been such a joy. Thank you. Thank so you, much. Helen. This has been Helen McDonald. Again, the new book is Vesper Flights. Wherever you get your books, you can get that one. And uh, again, obviously, as I think we've given a little bit of a sampling, it uh, covers all kinds of ground and it's wonderful writing. And of course, it's gotten so many good reviews. That the New York Times has written two great reviews on the same book by two different reviewers. So that's what some measure of how well it's done. So, Helen, thanks again for joining us today for uh, Talking Animals, and uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you about the next one. Thank you. Take care now. You too. Bye bye.
In a moment, I'll speak with Chef Mark Reinfeld of the Vegan Fusion Culinary Academy in Boulder, Colorado, which today starts accepting applications for its aspiring chef program. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with Nate Bargatze and his piece, Fat Cat, in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. My parents have a real, real, real fat cat. It's real fat. Uh, people, people point it out. You know, they walk in. They're like, "Man, that cat's fat," and it feels rude. You know, like he doesn't speak English, but we do, so maybe don't say that. And they're just, you know, they're like, "What are y'all feeding this cat?" You're like, oh, "Whatever you feed a cat, dude. I don't, like normal cat food stuff. We pour a bowl. He eats it. Like if he eats eight birds outside, he doesn't tell us." You know, he's not like, oh, I ate out tonight, I'm good. Uh, and then they're like, well, y'all should do something. Like, what do you think we're not doing? Do you think he has a gym membership and we don't drive him to the gym? He's a cat. That's his gym membership. He's, he's a cat. That was Nate Bargatze in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Fat Cats, taken from one of his appearances on Comedy Central. Now it's time to speak with chef, author, and wearer of other hats, Mark Reinfeld, about the Vegan Fusion Culinary Academy and its aspiring chef program for which they started accepting applications today. This is Mark Reinfeld, back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Mark. Hey, Duncan. So great to talk again. Yeah, likewise. So give us a quick overview of the Academy, first of all, and then we'll get into more specifics about the Aspiring Chef program. Cool. Thanks. So we're opening up a state-of-the-art culinary, vegan culinary academy in Boulder, Colorado. We're building out a, uh, we have a fully loaded professional kitchen, all like state-of-the-art, and then we have a home kitchen. So our primary program is going to be this four-month aspiring chef pro, uh, training to train people for a career in the plant-based culinary world. That's great. And we should know it. I'm sorry if I missed it, if you did say this, uh, but uh, this is in Boulder, Colorado. So yes, um, sir. for people making plans as they hear about how cool this might be, they should factor that in just because, um, <laughs> you know, it could be anywhere, but and, it just happens to be Boulder. The, yes. And uh, we're also offering programs for pr- those who are already uh, professional chefs but don't have the vegan skills to help them up their vegan game. And then we'll also have a host of classes for home cooks. So we'll do evening classes and weekend workshops and date nights. And uh, the space is large enough to host, like, movie screenings. And uh, it's going to be a real uh, community vortex here for the plant-based uh, community in Boulder. So, Mark, with that in mind, then, since the initial thing at least I had read about was like this four month program, but I mean, if it's some of it's aimed at like chefs who are probably like you say trying to up their game and there's like I think business skills and other things that are part of it, would that be different than the one that's kind of more home based? In other words, do people come and yeah, go from classes is, this or? Four months, the four month training, we're, uh, we're in the process of becoming accredited by the state of Colorado and we're looking to get uh, national accreditation. And the, this is, it's really the primary focus. And 
if you recall from our last conversations, like for me, this a form of activism to show people how you could create delicious plant-based cuisine. So by training people, whether you want to open up a food truck or do uh, consulting or a restaurant or a personal chef, we're going to be custom tailoring and mentoring the students uh, in whichever direction they want their career to take. That's great. But it sounds like for the full effect, the full shebang, as it were, that it would be a four-month commitment, um, especially which, again, might be pertinent if they don't necessarily currently live in Boulder but might want to relocate to take this yeah, kind of seriously. Yeah, we have on our website, we have a housing resource page uh, that lists, like, short-term rentals. And uh, so, and we have people applying from, from the Boulder-Denver area, but we definitely have people from all over the country applying. Yeah. And how many people would be, once it's all set and you've selected your applicants, how many people would actually be uh, participating in the program? Uh, we're going to cap it at 16 students because okay. we want to keep keep the classes pretty small. And sure. We really want to have the mentor quality to, to our training. So we want to keep it small. We're also going to be, like you mentioned, mentioned offering uh, business insights and kind of skills to get people on the business side yeah. up to speed. And uh, my wife, Ashley, is a vegan naturopathic doctor, and she's going to be doing an eight-part food as medicine curriculum for that four-month training. So oh, wow. People will get a basic knowledge of the whys. Uh, in terms of the health benefit. Sure. So, Mark, give us the uh, the website where people who could get more information, including the tuition, other details, the housing information you alluded to, et cetera, or even if they feel like they, they're, once they check that out further, they're ready to apply. I assume that all can be done on the website. Yes, sir. And that website is what? Uh, it's vegangenacademy.com. Okay, simple enough. Cool. And... <laughs> And then, I mean, obviously, every person that applies is different and therefore what they might end up at the end of the program. What would a graduate of this program, uh, what would be a reasonable expectation in terms of the sort of job that they would be equipped or further equipped to handle or, or get land after they complete uh, well, it? Well, we're, I, I would say because of the mentorship quality, they'll, they'll have a really solid foundation in just preparing plant-based cuisine, a whole whole array of world cuisine. And then uh, we also will be uh, giving them the like skills necessary for, say, a personal chef. So you'll have the basic knowledge to, to go out. And uh, we will be working with local business owners. So people, students will have the opportunity to we're going to have panels like for people that have opened up restaurants or do catering or personal shop services so that they could get a glimpse of what, what the path ahead would look like. For them. Right. Not to mention probably some nice networking opportunities as well. Definitely. Yeah. Great. Okay, Mark. Well, this sounds good. So again, to find out more about it, it's veganfusionacademy.com. Do I have that correct? Yes. Okay, great. So find out all about the course and details and housing and other opportunities. And, and again, if you're not necessarily looking to become a professional chef or more professional chef, you can also find out about other things you could do just to kind of up your game just in the, uh, in the kitchen in your home. So, Mark, thanks uh, again, for, again for joining us on Talk Thank In. It was so always much. great Thank speaking with you. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rob Lorai is up next with radioactivity, and the music kicks back in at 1 o'clock. just want to remind you, next Wednesday at 10, my guest will be Michelle Gad, who will be overseeing the relocation 
of those former Ringling Brothers elephants from the tiny facility where they've lived since the circus pulled the elephants from the show to a spacious, carefully designed elephant habitat. So we'll hear all about that and how that's going to work. That's it. Next Wednesday at 10 a.m. on Talking Animals on WNF. Please visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives, links to social media, etc. This is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Brandon Clearwater at Largo. Weeki Watch and Beyond. NPR News Headlines is next. And then Rob Lorai with Radioactivity. Thanks.